Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. So we walk out, we walk down the steps, we get onto the pitch and somebody shouted, Fam! So I turned around and all, all of them were standing there with a beer in their hand going, Cheers! <laughs> 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 Rotten sods. You're listening to the Lord's Cricket Podcast with me, Will Rowe. These are the stories from the home of cricket with the people that made them. Well, welcome to this episode of the Lord's Cricket Podcast. And it's my absolute pleasure to be joined by the legend that is Graham Foxy Fowler. Uh, we're actually recording this in Foxy's conservatory at his home in Durham. Foxy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, first question I'm going to ask, actually, is uh, wh- where did the nickname come from? Ah, um, my, fir- my test debut was at Headingley in 1982 against Pakistan. And on Wednesday, we had nets um, and played started the game on Thursday. So I went in the dressing room to get changed after the gateman wouldn't let me in for 20 minutes because he didn't believe I was playing. <laughs> so I eventually got in. I went into the dressing room and there was Ian Botham getting getting stuff out of his bag and getting ready. There was Bob Willis, who was the captain in the far corner, and me. Yeah. So I just start getting ready and uh, Bob Willis just said, Foxy. So, so I looked up. I said, I said, sorry? He said, Foxy. I said, but why, why have you called me that? He said, that's your name now. <laughs> oh. So I went downstairs, out onto the ground, into the net. Um, Vic Marks was making his debut as well. And he introduced he introduced me to all the lads as Foxy. So for the for the first few days, I'm running all over and people were shouting Foxy. I had no idea who they were talking to. And then I realised it was me. And that was it. That's how daft it was. So it was Bob Willis that coined it. Yeah. Um, was it was it named after a um, some prison yeah, was, escape it, prisoner from yeah, like the fifties or something? Yeah, he was. Uh, <laughs> he was a, a. He was in London, uh, and his nickname was Foxy Fowler, and he kept he kept getting arrested. He was a petty thief, I think, and he kept escaping forever. He put him. So that's. I don't know why he nicknamed me after that, but, but that's how the name came about, and it's stuck ever since. Unusually, though, now when I meet Bob Willis, I, I get on with him really, really well. He calls me Graham, <laughs> <laughs> which is completely bizarre. Nobody else does. Fair enough. Um, when when you made that uh, test debut, you were you were playing for Lancashire. That's your county. That's yeah. that's where you grew up. Yeah. Um, the, the story has it that he rang you up and said, I'd like you to come to Headingley, and you said, why? <laughs> <laughs> true, it's exactly true. See, what I thought, because we were off for rain, and I was, although I was a cat player, I was downstairs in the junior dressing room with a lot of my mates, and the dressing room attendant, Ron Spriggs, came in and said, Fow, because I haven't got the nickname Fox then, yeah. Fow, uh, Bob Willis is on the phone. Now, Ron Spriggs was an enormous practical joker. We also had phones downstairs around the back that were coin operated. So a lot of lads used to go around there, sit on those phones, ring upstairs right, and yeah. play jokes. So I thought, here we go, it's just a joke. Bob Willis played for Warwickshire. Mm. And I had a run of seven innings against Warwickshire where I didn't get less than 75. Um, including 200s in a game at Southport with a runner. Um, and he he rang David Lloyd up apparently I only found this way after he said he said to Bumble um, he said what's he like he said well he always gets runs against you doesn't he and that must have been it really so I went upstairs and uh, this voice said hello it's Bob Willis he said hello he said uh, he said I would like you to um, come to Headingley to next uh, Wednesday to join the England squad 
Why? <laughs> well, 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 he, he was taken aback. He said, well, because we want you to open the bathroom. Oh, right. Okay. Thanks. Bye. That was it. And that was it. And then, then you turned up and they wouldn't let you in. Yeah, they won't yeah. let me in. I had a 15-year-old <laughs> Triumph 2000. Right. And this guy won't let... He thought I was a netballer. And he said, no, netballer's down the rugby. I said, no, no, I'm playing. He said, you're not playing? I said, I am. He said, who are you? I said, I'm Graham Fowler. He said, I've never heard of you. I said, that, well, you will do. <laughs> and I, he said, well, I'll let you in today, but you're not coming in tomorrow. So I hadn't got on any passes and stuff. So the right. following day, when I got passes, same gateman, he just completely just went around, coming, didn't apologise, nothing. I just drove straight past him. Um, just over the ropes for the first four of the innings to Graham Fowler. So a very good and confident start by the young Lancastrian. And it was it was quite a debut because you you made eighty six I believe in the second innings. Yeah. So you played well. That's a... uh, second innings. Second uh, innings yeah. eighty six. Yeah. Um, it, it ended up being the top score in the game because it was a bit of a seeming wicket. Yeah. And, and Etty Shamadin, a little fat chap, got me out in the first innings. It was a perfect ball to get a left hander. It pitched off and hit off. And is bowling. So Fowler goes. Edison strikes. The ball knocking back the off stump and England lose the first wicket with the total on 15. Fowler bowl Edison Wood in from nine. And here we can see this and I think we'll probably find it went through the gap. Yes, it just held up. It was a good delivery. What was it like going into that England dressing room? Because you'd, you'd been sort of catapulted from... <laughs> well, you'd, gone, from, you'd gone quite quickly through the yeah, Lancashire I, and then suddenly you were playing for England. I'd gone from being a second 11 player at Lancashire to an international in 18 months. <laughs> Just open the door and let the dog yeah. out. <laughs> There's a... There we go. Just wedge it open with something. Anything. At this point, we pause to let one of Foxy's dogs into the back garden. We pick up the conversation around the 80s, a time when cricketers, the likes of Ian Botham, Mike Gatting and David Gower, might find themselves on the front pages of the tabloids as much as the back. The game was yet to become professional in the way we think about it today. So what was it like? When I went on my first tour, which is an Ashes tour, we didn't have any net through anything before we went we had one meeting where um, we had a very flimsy physical examination we got measured for clothes which never fit uh, and then we just all met at, at Lloyd's to get all this stuff and go to Australia, there was no practice whatsoever and one of the things was when we got to Brisbane we had to run a 7 minute mile to prove we were fit I could run a seven-minute mile backwards. <laughs> you know, yeah, I used you to do five miles in 27 minutes, not a seven-minute mile. And uh, and also, the thing about made me laugh was, well, it's a bit late, we're already in Brisbane. So what happens if somebody can't do it? What happens to them? And Eddie, Eddie Emmons couldn't do it, but they didn't send him on. Right. So it was there was no professionalism at all. We didn't have a coach. Yeah. But, I mean, that, that was also the tour where you fell backwards... Through a table, is that right? With El- Elton John's party, uh, I had to get that story in somehow. Yes, no, yeah, that was. It was that. out in Australia, wasn't it? Yeah. So I mean, the, was, was, I guess my oh, question. No, 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 it wasn't that tour. Was it, it not? No, it was. It was uh, the allegedly the sex, drugs, and rock and roll tour at eighty three, eighty four, right. which was Fiji, New Zealand, Pakistan, and I fell through the table in New Zealand in Auckland. Yeah, what, tell tell us that story because that is bonkers. <laughs> that is absolutely bonkers. Well, the, the, <laughs> the situation was that we had a few days off before we went to Pakistan, uh, and during the afternoon, me and some people I'd met out there we went to uh, an outdoor concert and uh, you weren't allowed to take drinking so we took Fanta in which was half Fanta half tequila (laughs) we all had two litres each (laughs) so I drank that during the day so I'm flying quite high Uh, get back to the hotel to find out that that Elton's having a party so I go up and I picked I was thirsty so I picked up what I thought was a tumbler of water drank it and it was just neat gin <laughs> so very shortly afterwards I was completely drunk yeah um, and f- slipped and fell through fell backwards onto a glass top table completely smashed it drinks went everywhere 
incredibly and I didn't cut myself and then I stood up and I went out the way and people were scurrying around trying to clean up and I just stood next to Elton and Renata um, and she was on my right so I just turned my head sideways and I could see her upper arm so I just bit it <laughs> At which point she screamed and shouted, get him out of here. And that Renato was his then wife. His wife, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so they screamed, get him out of here. So so Beefy took me out. Uh, but I didn't want to go, so I went back. <laughs> Peter Reed, his manager, um, <coughs> told me to get out. So, and I've never been in a fight in my life. I took a swing at him, missed and hit the wall. <laughs> so Beefy got hold of me again in a headlock, took me out, took me to my room this time. And then I went back again. <laughs> so this time Beefy just grabbed me around the neck, dragged me to to my room, and uh, I woke up next day. And oh, I, oh no, he took me to hospital because I went to put my hand through a window outside. I don't know why I did that. Uh, the derelict building, and I was bleeding like mad all around there. You can still see the scars. Yeah. So he dragged me to hospital. Um, he stitched me up. Went. He took me back to the hotel. Put me in the room and the following day I wake up and my arm's bandaged from there to there and I'm thinking what have I done then it all came back and I thought oh my god <laughs> I, I'll have to go and apologise I'll have to and he was having a barbecue on his on his balcony right <laughs> so it was it was later on in the day it was about 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock or something I can't remember the time and I went up I thought I've got to go and apologise so I knocked on the suite door. The door opened. I walked in, and everybody, I got stand innovation. Everybody stood up and applauded and cheered. And, <laughs> and I said, uh, and so I apologised, and, and they said, stay, stay. I said, no, I'm too embarrassed to stay, so I didn't stay. And years later, I said to Elton, I said, why did I get a stand innovation? He said, you were the best entertainment we've ever had. <laughs> He said, I thought cricketers were dull till I met you. <laughs> so that's how we started a friendship. It's a brilliant story. I mean, <laughs> in terms of the professionalism, though... Um, there was none. There, well, yeah, there, there was none. There clearly was none. And, and but it, you, was the end, it was the end of the New Zealand leg. Yeah, of so course. We, we were just letting her air down. I mean, yeah. some of this a bit too much. <laughs> Uh, but then you go to Pakistan and, yeah. and start again. Were there players in the side, though, which maybe would have frowned on that behaviour, who would have been, say, maybe more professional, so to speak? Yeah, I I would have frowned upon it. Right. I frowned upon it because I was more professional than that. Yeah. Uh, but yes, of course. Yeah, Beefy wasn't happy at all with how I behaved. And one of the reasons it, it, was, it was frustration is because I hadn't been in the team. Mm. I was the leading run scorer up to the first test match and I didn't get picked and then when I did play we played on the worst test wicket I've ever played on and then got a first baller at Auckland so I think I averaged four so I was you know that was the build up of frustration really Graham Fowler's born in 1957 in Accrington in Lancashire. It's the county where he spends most of his career. From humble beginnings to a university education, then onto opening the batting for England, we chat about Foxy's early life. I was born three streets away. I was born in a terraced house. I was born three streets away from David Lloyd. He was in Water Street and I was in Bold Street, B-O-L-D, Bold Street. Uh, although he was 10 years older than me. So our paths didn't cross then. But it was only when I went to university in Durham mm. that I realised how good the sense of humour was in Accrington. It's just, everybody's like me and Bumble. It's a it's <laughs> hilarious place to be. Um, and and then the other thing I realised was it doesn't rain as much in the rest of the world as it does in Accrington. <laughs> but... I, I learned early on when, once I'd started mixing like going for uh, England under 17s camps or under 18s camps as they were then and started mixing with people from other counties um, you, you know the, the Chris Cowdery's the David Gowers all, that, that sort of Bill Athey all those I realised two things one their lives up to point had been completely different to mine and two, because I had a very strong Lancashire accent, then it, believe it or not, this has is, been diluted through the years. But because I had a very strong accent, they thought my head buttoned up the back. They thought I was an idiot. 
Right. Once people think you are an idiot, it's amazing what you can find out. Because they'll, so you'll ask them a question and they think because you're such a clown, they tell you. Yeah. So I used to use that to my advantage. Did you resent that at all, or were you sort of happy to play along with well, that? I, I, I suppose I didn't like it initially, but then it didn't bother me. You know, it doesn't bother me. What's the point of that? Yeah. Why, why get bothered about where you've been brought up? That's you know, it's just an act of geography, isn't it? Really. So. And could have been worse. I could have, <laughs> I could have been a brummy <laughs> <laughs> from Bradford. <laughs> but I mean, w- w- when you grew up, you you. You weren't sort of naturally taken to cricket, as I understand it. You used to watch it on the TV because it was on the BBC. You'd watch, you know, the old guys playing. Yeah. But it wasn't... It was just something you sort of did. You know, you, you played it. You yeah. never... You never, as I understand it, you never had aspirations to play for no. England because you didn't think that was a job. It was but just... I didn't, I didn't even realise. I was so naive. Yeah. I got picked to play for the Lancashire second team when I was 16. I didn't even know they had a second team. <laughs> I didn't even know you could be a professional cricketer. I don't know what I thought. I just hadn't thought. It hadn't even crossed my mind. Um, and once I started playing, I then bit by bit obviously realised that you could you could have a career out of it. Um, and when in 1974, John Savage, the England coach, said the England, the Lancashire coach at the end of the season, he was second eleven coach. He didn't do any coaching. He just carried the balls. But he was a lovely man he just said uh, what are you doing next year so what do you mean he said well we're going to offer you a contract I said oh, I'm going to university all oh, right and it, it, not at any stage did I think I'll not go to university because my father was born a farmer's son who became, and he became a motor mechanic and my mum was a cotton mill weaver and neither of them had an education past 11 and my dad who I absolutely loved to bits. My mother's a different story. But my dad had always impressed on me two things. One, go as far as you can in your education. Go as far as you can. Because um, it will always be useful no matter what level you get to. And also go as far as you can in your sport. Because if you fulfil your potential, whatever level you get to, you can hold your hands up and be a proud man. So and my dad was thrilled to bits that I got a place at university so that, that was never in doubt I was always going to go to university and then I played because university cricket back then wasn't like the centres of excellence I now no um, so I Paul Allett and myself who was, we were at Bede at the same time we used to nip home and play for play for Lancashire under 25 club and ground second 11 so through the three years at university I actually played quite a bit for Lancashire twos and especially after when Summeraldi started at the university. And then I did my final exam on Friday in 1978. And on Monday morning, I, w- I started a professional career at Old Trafford. Amazing. Yeah, and I ne- funnily enough, I never even went back for my qualifications. Um, I, it was a weird system. You could three-year B-Eds, didn't start at Durham until 1976, so I missed it by a year. But you could qualify for a fourth year if your results were good enough and I qualified for the fourth year so I rang up my personal tutor and I said uh, what do you think I should do Pauline she said go and play cricket you're never going to teach <laughs> said, All right, okay. so that was it so I just that was it I went and going into that Lancashire dressing room it was quite stuffy from there was a, there was a lot of um it's quite traditional, a maybe. A lot of humour. Yeah. There's also a, a massive hierarchy. Yeah. And if you stepped out of line, you didn't know it. I mean, some of the some of the, the old professionals were were actually nasty. Yeah. You know, um, I was playing in the first team, and I'm still a second eleven player. And I got out, so I, I'm changing downstairs. So I got out and I thought, well, I better go and sit with the lads who I'm playing with upstairs. Barry Wood, who, who wasn't playing at the time, was in the dressing room. And I walked in. He said, did you knock? I said, pardon? He said, did you knock on the dressing room to come in? I said, no, I'm playing in the game. He said, get out and knock. And he kicked me out and I had to knock to come back in. So there was that sort of yeah. stuff going on. Was um, that, is that the same at other counties or was that particular so. to Lancashire? Uh, well, I mean, I wasn't in other dressing rooms. Yeah. But I'm fairly sure at that time it was, you know, there'd be quite a lot of that knocking about. Yeah. yeah, you know. So you had to be. I mean, I quite 
go up and whiten somebody's pads or the boots with sandpaper and linseed oil the bat. Yeah. I'm quite happy to do that. But one of the senior players asked, said, after I'd done that, said, right, now go and wash my car. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. That's nothing to do with cricket. You wash your own bloody car. In 1984, the West Indies are in England. Following a poor tour to New Zealand, where Foxy, amongst other things, such as falling through Elton John's coffee table, averages just four with the bat. He retains his place for the visit of the West Indies, but gets a duck and seven in the first test at Edgbaston. So arrives at Lord's for the second test with some serious self-doubt. And it had been written in the press by a few journalists that... Fowler is not good enough to play at this level. And I actually thought, well, if I have to play this lot every day, I'm not so sure whether I am. So I went to Lords knowing that if I don't get runs here, I'm dropped. Um, so th- that was at the back of my mind. But And I suppose for, for, for the first time in my life, I couldn't sleep yeah. before, before the first day. But I always did what I always did, went to have a few pints first and... Had a meal and went to bed, and I just I was just pacing the floor, and it got to about three o'clock, and I still hadn't been to sleep, and I'm thinking this is ridiculous, so I rang down to room service and got three pints of Guinness sent up, because I thought I'm better off getting some sleep and might may have a little bit of a thick head, rather than be awake all night, so I had three pints of Guinness sent up and necked him as quickly as possible went to bed and slept <laughs> and, and then we did we, we opened uh, we yeah. batted first didn't yeah, we yeah you batted first so you went out uh, you opened the batting with Chris Broad that was his debut yeah, yeah. David Gower um, was captaining so out you go you was, took, was Gower captain are you he sure 100% I oh. hope so yeah he, yeah he definitely was Gower was captain for that no, match okay. right, so, so Dave, David Gower was captaining um, so you bat first you're a little bit hung over um, no I wasn't actually I felt, no, I felt, felt alright right. yeah I think the adrenaline must have kicked in and, right yeah no I was fine I was right as rain and it was a bit of a one of those miserly type days you yeah. know it was a bit of grey a bit of rain here and there and um, obviously you make your way through the long room and then out to face let's uh, barring maybe the Aussies the greatest uh, fastballing attack ever yeah it was um, well Garner and Marshall opened up together and that it was they were really freaky to play against because if Malcolm Marshall bowled a particular length you had to go forward but if Joel Garner bowled that length you had to go back because of the steepness of the bounce so it really messed around with your head a little bit but the the good thing for me well it was good and bad the good thing for me was we kept going off for a bit of drizzle and a bit of rain I don't know how many times I went off but that gave me a mental rest Unfortunately, it gave them a physical rest. So they just came out refreshed again. But I think it must have worked better for me than it than it did for them because I was I think I was 70 not out that night. Yeah, overnight you were 70 not yeah. out. And guess what? I couldn't sleep again. So what did you do? Order another three pints of Guinness. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought it worked. It worked yesterday. I'll give it another go. So, so you go out the next day and then, you know, you're on 70, not out. I think you you hooked Malcolm Marshall? Yeah, twice. Two best hook shots I've ever played in my life. What were you thinking? <laughs> I have no idea. It was two consecutive balls as well. Because it wasn't in your repertoire to No, hook. I didn't usually hook, no. Yeah. I usually got out of the way. But it, I think the two shots took me into the 90s. Yeah. Um, I, I have no idea why I played them. I don't know. I just did. But they were the two best ones I ever played. And then they brought on Roger Harper. Yippee! <laughs> <laughs> so they bring on the spinner, and 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 then that was that and was I your s- moment. Yeah, I slug swept him over long on. Yeah, and that was against the spin, but that was something I could play. I did. Well, he went for the big one and uh, well executed shot, fetched it in the right area. He just had to clear Garner at mid on. Takes him now onto ninety nine. And then the next ball, he bowled it short, and I rocked back and cut it behind square to get me 100. That's it. Beautiful square cut this time for four runs, consecutive fours, taking Graham Fowler onto a really magnificent 100. How well he's battled. Great test of temperament, of courage, and particularly today of skill. He's improved as the game has gone on, and he reaches 103 out of 238 for four. 13 boundaries in his 100, 
It's his uh, second Test match 100 and Clive Lloyd very nicely walks over to shake hands with him. And then Eldin Baptiste coming out. <laughs> he's gone this time. Very safely caught at uh, second slip. So he flushed out there once or twice off Eldin Baptiste later. Just a little bit of lack of concentration after he'd gone to three figures. Sees the end of a really excellent performance from Graham Fowler. 106 and it's 2 uh, 43 for 5. And the first wicket for Eldon Baptiste. Looks a bit tired, a little bit weary, but he's done a magnificent job here for England today. To me, Lords is like what a lot of people will say this it's the finest ground in the world. Um, although it was incredibly hard work, I found it a privilege to be playing against the best bowling attack in the world, playing against the best team in the world. I mean, they didn't lose a series for 15 years. That's an enormous stretch of time. So I found it a privilege. I found it hard work, obviously. But so I, I loved getting that 100 it meant a lot to me um, one because it was at Lords two because it, it was against the West Indies um, and, and also the captain of the West Indies was my county captain Clive Lloyd so he and, and he waited I was batting with Beefy at the time so Beefy shook me on and I've, just, I've got a photo of that somewhere uh, and then when everything had died down Clive walked up from the first to second slip all the way open. that was about 30 yards <laughs> to shake my hand and that that meant a lot because he'd been a big influence on me yeah um, th he did something wonderful in my second test match um, I got out cheaply in the first innings and I was not out overnight in the second innings <clears throat> no mobile phones no Skype and he rang my room in Brisbane. So he worked out where I was, what the number was, what the time difference was. And he rang me up when he knew I'd be getting up. And he said to him, you can do this. You've done it before, you did it, Eddingly. You can do this again. Don't worry about how you've been playing. Just you. And I thought, wow, from the captain of the world, really. Mm. That was an incredibly inspiring thing. You know, that was a privilege for somebody like Clive to ring me up and say, you can do it. A real, oh, shows the class of the man. Yeah, it does, yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Back to Lords, and after Graham scores his 106, England establish a first innings lead of 41 runs. They then rack up 300 for nine, declaring on the final morning, setting the West Indies 342 to win. But England forgets about one thing Gordon Greenwich. It's a great shot. Had some really good shots this morning, Gordon Greenwich. I was fielding at at, uh, at cover. Lammy was at point, and Gordon Greenwich was famous for his square cuts. Um, it didn't matter where we were; he hit it in between us. Four square drive. He's whizzing past Graham Fowler at point. We ended up at one point five yards apart. And he still hit it in between us. We just couldn't stop him. Yeah. And, and in those days, the, you didn't put a fielder on the boundary to save the four. That was just where Test cricket was played. Just had an infield. Yeah, just had the infield. Yeah. You know, apart from a deep square leg, I think that was about it. Yeah. And he just kept smashing it between us. And they walked it. Absolutely walked it. Beautiful shot. Put through mid wicket for yet another boundary. So strong here around his leg stump, and that was the area that Foster fed him. The full swing of the bat there. There it is. The players are off. Four to goes. A win for the West Indies by nine wickets. 214 not out to Gordon Greenwich. 
Magnificent innings from him and a very, very good knock from Larry Gomes. 92 he made in the total of 344 for one. And what seemed to be an almost impossible assignment at the start of this innings has turned out to be an absolute dollar. Coming off after that match as a side, you must have thought, these guys are unbeatable. That that was a massive, massive blow because, we, as you said, we had a first innings lead. We chose to declare, if we bowl them out, we're one all in the series. But, it, but that was an absolutely hammer blow to get beaten after we declared. And it, it did, it knocked everybody back. Uh, because they had such confidence and ability that they could turn a match from any situation. I used to go out for supper with Michael during the during the test match when I got chance. At Michael Holding. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he was he was talking to me and he was saying that you know well if if one of us is if four fast bowlers he said if one of us is having an off day he said the other three automatically take on these overs we'll do it. So he said, so if you have a slight off day, I don't know what an off day was for Michael Holden, then, then we'll take over. So they had, they had that unique ability to go, it's all right, I'll do it. And then the batting was exactly the same. But they all went in saying, I can do this. But if they got out, the next one went in, well, don't worry, I'll get your runs as well. So that was just incredible. And it was Clive who built that up in them. He turned them from being a group of islanders into the West Indies. Yeah. You know, and that was because when he first took over, you know, there was rivalry between the rivals, mm. between the islands. And, and he got rid of all that and he just made them into a force, you know, and they just believed they could do it. Absolutely it, believed. I interviewed him the other year and he actually said that when he got the call, um, he'd only ever captained his school team. So he was a bit shocked by that one. He said, yeah. oh, what, you want me to do this? And yeah. they, they said, yeah, please. And yeah, he obviously had that ability to just bring people yeah. together. Beautiful diplomat. I, I played a, I played for a, a World Eleven yeah. in the West Indies at Jamaica Festival. And it was um, Andy Roberts and Michael Oldin, Malcolm Marshall and Sylvester Clark. It's supposed to be a festival game. <laughs> Mendel got knocked over, hit him on the head and got knocked over off Mako. Because um, he used to have this thing, often either the first or the second ball of a spell was a bouncer. And he hit Mendel straight on the visor and knocked him over. And all he could say, man, was after I stopped laughing, I said, are you all right? He said, all this way to get pinned. And that's all he could say, I've just come all this way to get pinned. <laughs> but they were, and at one point, I smashed Michael Alden through extra cover because there were no fielders in front. There's only Desmond Danes at bat pad. And I smashed it, Mikey, at a head height through extra cover. And I did it two balls running. And he just walked down the wicket and said, Foul, are these not coming down fast enough? <laughs> you take it easy, I take it easy. So the next ball was the same ball, and I blocked it. He went, <laughs> that, that was that. <laughs> Between 1982 and 1985, Foxy plays 21 tests for England. Scoring three centuries, averaging 35.32, opening the batting. 34 years on from that test against the West Indies, we chat about life in the dressing room. Well, there was a lot of, lot of humour in the dressing room, a lot of humour. Uh, there was also a lot of frustration, especially against the West Indies. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. How did you pass the time in those rain breaks? I mean, you and the, the, the team in general. The guys read the paper, yeah. chat. I yeah, mean... crosswords, chat. If it's raining for a long time, a lot of them would play bridge. Right. Um, Beefy liked to play cribbage with Jeff Miller if he was there. He played one continuous game of cribbage through the entire uh, New Zealand tour. And they, they worked it out at the end that... Um, Beefy or Jeff Miller, something like 1,700 quid... So if you gave him the cheque and he tore it up and he said, oh, it was never about the money. <laughs> but they played all tour. One continuous, you know, one kept adding up all the points and stuff. That was life life in an England dressing room in the 1980s. Yeah, I mean... It must have been an amazing place, though. Do you yeah. sit here now and sort of... Are those your, kind of your fondest memories? I don't know, really. I mean, I've got many of them. Yeah. You know, many of them. Um... 
one of my fondest memories of Lloyd's was because when Nancy was I mean the food's still beautiful now mm. but when Nancy was in charge Nancy was the dinner lady or the, the yeah, the, yeah well, she, she looked after chef. yeah looked after the players dining yeah. room yeah quite legendary I believe yeah, she yeah. is and uh, her food was the best anywhere in England it was magnificent and we had a rather large off spinner called Jack Simmons he was about he must have been 16 still right food was his passion <laughs> and we went off we were fielding and we went off for lunch it was a nice warm day and Jack's had a feast and it, near the window where the, you know the doors that open onto the little balcony there was some armchairs and he always got changed in one of them so while I had lunch and it's about five minutes ago and we turn around and we look and Jack Simmons is fast asleep <laughs> so rather than wake him up we all went shh and we all tiptoed out and went onto the pitch and one of the umpires said you've only got ten he said I know Simmons asleep we've left him we played for about four or five overs with just ten men. Then all of a sudden, we see Simo standing on the balcony with his arms outstretched, going, "What's happening?" <laughs> <laughs> and he came on; he was furious, absolutely. He was calling everybody up, every name under the sun, because we hadn't woke him up. And he blamed all of us. It wasn't his fault for falling asleep. <laughs> Why did he doze off? Well, he'd had so much to eat. Just, just <laughs> yeah, he'd had so much to eat. <laughs> Did you still play in the days when you could drink at lunchtime? I well, mean, I'd have a pint of ale. I think Mike Gatting said that was still yeah, happening always, to the late 70s. They were always, always on the table at, uh, at Headingley, always. Always yeah. pale ale and bitter. And when I was in the Lancashire dressing room, the 12th man's duty was to take a drinks list for the end of the day. And I reckon now to 12 drinks plus the scorer there would uh, plus the manager there may be one non-alcoholic drink so you'd often you know in the three day game you'd often have to bat going at bat at 10 to 6 for a horrible 40 minutes mm. you knew you were going to get peppered so me and Mendo used to get ready and be some well will you pass me that pint of lager and <laughs> so we just said look lads we know you're going to drink when we go out but do you not have to do it whilst we're padding up before we go out? <laughs> right? Just, just please. So they, they did. They, they kept quiet. Nobody said anything. And then, so we walk out, we walk down the steps, we get onto the pitch. And somebody shouted, Fab! So I turned around and all, all of them were standing there with a the beer in their hand going, Cheers! <laughs> <laughs> Rotten sods. <laughs> Those are, those are the days at Lancashire. Um, so, talking about Lancashire, that was... It was obviously, it was your county, but it also... It didn't end particularly well. Um, I think you... Not the, Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it did, yeah. That was what happened. Yeah, I mean, you stood up for Wazim Akram. Uh, there yes. was an incident. And then that was sort of... That was the beginning of the end in yeah. the, the late 80s. Yeah, so. and also, uh, the, other, the other factor was that uh, in 1990 we won the Benson Edges and, and the Nat West combined uh, and we had David Hughes as captain who batted number nine and didn't bowl so ten of us played out of his skins mm. I know in 91 if we, we had some good lads in the, in the second 11 you know people like Graham Lloyd who, who ended up playing Wands Internationals and we had, so we were a batsman light um, and we actually in eight, I think it was 89 we won the Sunday League uh, by, and the plan was to chase and we had three batsmen which was Guillaume Mendes, me and Neil Fairbrother. Coming in four was, was Mike Watkinson who's not a bad player but he's not a number four mm. and we actually won that by us playing really well but in 91 we weren't playing as well so that we needed the 11th player and David Hughes didn't like that he took it the wrong way and he uh, he basically told the club that uh, Paul Allerton me had organised a mutiny and and Bob Bennett added on to the thing where I tried to support Wazim and I just got called in and got sacked so and, I mean if I saw Bob Bennett I'd have a drink with him if I saw David Hughes I'd have a drink with him yeah you know but that that's what happened then move on you know that- and nobody had ever left Lancashire nicely nobody right <laughs> nobody ever did David Lloyd Clive Lloyd nobody 
It's just, so, just sort of part of the fabric of the county it, in it a way. All, it was all part of the fabric of the of the committee, yeah. Yeah. The way it was. You'd walk at the end of the season you'd walk in to the committee room and you would uh, either get a one year, a two year, a three year contract or they'd just tell you you're sacked, empty your locker and go. And it was that. That was it. There's no warning, no nothing. So, after 17 years at Lancashire, Foxy moves on to the next chapter. He joins Durham in 1992, but it's short-lived as he struggles with a shoulder injury and is also seen to run off with the then-marketing manager, Sarah, his wife now of 24 years, as his marriage is breaking down. Many at the county are unhappy with the scandal as it becomes tabloid news. Foxy Fowler, faxes for divorce, is one of the more catchy headlines, despite not being true he assures me so after two years he moves on in 1996 foxy sets up the center of excellence at durham university and begins life as a coach well i used to coach the kids in scarborough in western australia in perth uh, when i went out there and i enjoyed it and i became an advanced coach which is now the equivalent to level three and there only was three levels back then in 1979 so i was a qualified teacher um, qualified coach and I, I like coaching and teaching I like both of those I think I really enjoy them and, I, and I, there's nothing better than what, helping somebody get become a better player you know and that, that I got great satisfaction out of were you more interested in the individual or sort of the, the team progress nothing but the individual yeah um, I set up the centre of excellence to help young cricketers finish their education so their educate the degree came first yeah finish their education and progress their cricket at the same time because when i went to university my cricket more or less stayed still for three years so and, and it was 20 years later it's the same situation more or less so I wanted to set this up to help them progress. And the, the big difference was, as well, was when I went to university, only something like 8% of the population went. Mm. Well, now it's 49. So 49%, simple maths, 49% of your 18-year-old cricketers is going to be in university. So, and there are a lot of jobs you can't apply for now, minimum qualification degree. Mm. Yeah. So that, that all made sense, and that's what I did. And we've sent... Well, from Durham, we sent over 60 lads into first-class cricket. I had four, four play for England, for five, four or five. Five county captains, Andy Strauss. Yeah. Uh, the assistant coach of the England women's team, Alistair Maiden. You know, we had a... a, a the university this year had a pre-season game against Durham County. And the two opening batsmen from Durham County had been to Durham University. Yeah, so it was just a very simple system uh, and so it was all about the individual if we had a good team that was a byproduct yeah because my main emphasis I mean was was on helping players now that didn't always go down well with the university because they like to win trophies and get books points and stuff like that and I would say well look what would you rather have somebody who goes on to be captain of England or win a little tin pot trophy at university level uh, so I met with opposition because that's how I put it as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I met with opposition about that, but I, no, I was determined. This this is this system, this scheme, is to help cricketers to finish their education and develop into first class cricket and hopefully beyond. So I never budged. As as a person, I was sitting with here with you now and having having read your book you're very good at sort of saying that's done and move on you yeah. don't you don't sort of dwell on things I mean no because um, I don't obviously something ends but I, I prefer to think that something else is starting yeah uh, it, it, a lot of things like people say do you miss playing and I'll say no and they don't believe me they just don't believe that, that I, I mean it and I said no because I enjoyed that when I was doing it it's done why would I miss it? I had a, a life of it. So now I'm doing something else. Um, so something else is starting. And, and I said to him, um, what to, I, I talked to one bloke one day and I said, well, you know, what do you do for a living? He said, oh, I'm retired now. 
I said, oh, okay. I said, what did you used to do? He said, no, I was an accountant. I said, oh, do you, at weekends, do you do some accountancy? He said, no. I said, well, why would I play cricket then? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think well, cricket is probably more enjoyable than being an accountant. Yeah, but, that, but that's but my point was that's what he used to do. Yeah. And mm-hmm. for me, I could never turn uh, a profession into a hobby. I mean, what for? You know, mm. I'll be playing on soft wickets against rubbish ballers. <laughs> in, well, compared to the West Indies well, rubbish ballers. Yeah. So it, it wouldn't be like, how much fun would that be? I'd hate it. Also, if I get 100, I'm supposed to. If I don't get 100, I'm a donkey. Mm. And the other thing that really matters to me is I'm keeping somebody else out of the team. Yeah. No matter which team I'm playing for, I'm keeping somebody else out. Now, I've had en- enough cricket and enough fun in cricket to last a lifetime so why would I stop somebody else having fun you know so there was I was never ever I played two charity matches uh, in 95 and that was it that was it Um, and not to drop this in like one of those kind of um, clangers in a TV series but we've been talking about your whole cricket career here Mm. and you mentioned that injury um, fielding injury you sustained but in 1978, you'd suffered a car crash, which basically meant through most of your career, in layman's terms, you were playing with a broken neck. Yeah. C4, C5, and a bit of C6 were crushed. Yeah. Um, it was a head-on crash. It wasn't my fault. Block was on the wrong side of the road as I went around a bend. And as I went forward, the um, I had a seatbelt on, and they weren't compulsory, but I had one on. As I went forward... I remember going down, I, remember, I bent the, the steering wheel with my arms and my head hit the gear lever and I never bounced back. And it was the actual going forward that the, the crushing absorbed all the shock. Yeah. If it hadn't crushed, I'd then I bounced back and got whiplash. So I broke my leg in it as well, so they, they found that. Um, but nobody ever x-rayed my neck or anything. And what happened... Over time, I get a pain under the shoulder blade, and it would out of it for a couple of days, and then it'd go away. But over time, it became more consistent, stronger. It hurt more until eventually, I, and I still can't. I can only turn to there. That way, I can do that. So it was all right batting. Yeah. For the one, sake of the podcast, yeah, you're, you're turning turn, to your yeah. right hand side here. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> but, but the problem was that once I played the shot and followed through, yeah. that's almost basically like turning your head to the left. Yeah. it's just that your body does it and that used to kill so yeah. I went back to the consultant and he re-x-rayed my neck and he said yep that's what you've done so that's, it's amazing that you managed to play your career with that injury yeah uh, there, was, there were I mean you didn't know it at the time no. which maybe psychologically changes it I'm sure it does well I knew but, afterwards yeah because you can't uncrush them yeah, but what what happened? The reason I got the pains was because the bones were recalcifying, so they were trapping nerves. Right. So I think if, in total I had four manipulative operations where they give you a general anaesthetic and you just screw your head round and break all the bits <laughs> off. Um, and David Markham was an incredible surgeon who looked after me. He he said, "You are lucky." He said because you could have just landed the wrong way, and it would have been curtains, but even after knowing I had these crushed bones I, mean, I still dived about I wasn't going to stop mm. because I don't know you just can't can you You know, this is what I'm doing yeah. this is me living this is what I love doing so I'm just going to carry on when Graham was 47 10 years after his playing career finishes he's diagnosed with depression he goes on to speak very publicly about his battles with mental illness I asked Foxy if he feels his time in the game as a cricketer in any way caused his depression or if it was a pre-existing condition within him. That's one of the hardest questions to answer. Um, Only thing that used to happen to me was every September I'd lock myself in my house. After the season had finished, I'd have a, a week to myself. I'd unplug the phone, lock the front door, draw the curtains... And I'd just go and get a big pile of videos. Yeah. Because that was modern technology back then. VHS? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, I got past the Betamax. <laughs> and I'd go down to the video store and get a load of videos. 
and I'd eat when I was hungry, I'd have a drink when I wanted to, and I'd go to bed when I wanted to, and I'd just watch videos for a week. And I interpreted that as recharging my batteries. Mm. Uh, and I was always sad in September uh, because I always knew you've only got so many seasons in you. So every September, that's one less. Now, whether they were tiny episodes of mild depression, I don't know. Yeah. I didn't think they were at the time. I just thought I'm just recharging my batteries because if you're playing from April till September, you, there are some days when you don't feel as well as you should do because you've eaten something dodgy the night before, or you got lost on the way to the, on the, traveling down to the hotel, or, so you've not got as much sleep. So I thought I always thought, right, I've used energy I don't have, physical energy. I've used mental energy that I don't have, and I've used emotional energy. And so I've depleted all those. So I just want to wait to myself just to get them back up again. Um, cricket's uh, there's a lot of stress in cricket mm. some of it's good stress and we like that you know you get to that exciting point of a match where if you can get through these next four overs you know you, you're well on your way to winning or or we've lost three quick wickets I've got to dig in or there's a catch going up if catch this we win you know so, but that's great stress because we love it there's also bad stress when you're, if you're having a, a bad run and you can't get a run anywhere now that was never too bad for me because by the time I had a really bad run uh, this was 85 mm. so I'd have my test career so I had that back knowledge that, and it was my neck as well once I get my neck sorted out I'll be okay but for a lot of young lads who were sort of in and out of the first team they're always wondering, oh, well, I need to get in the first team to get some runs or get some wickets because if I don't, they're not going to give me a contract. So there's a lot of that type of stress for, some, for a lot of players, but I was lucky enough not to have that. So I don't think cricket caused anything. I don't think there was a cause. It was just my head went on holiday. Yeah. You know, it's like you've been, you've been an idiot for 40 odd years. My brain's just said, I'm going on holiday. <laughs> get lost. And it, and it went. <laughs> it, it, on that when you're talking about cricket as a game compared to something like football it does lend itself to a certain type of loneliness now I'm not talking about you personally I'm just saying if you know it's, it's a team game but it's also an individual game yeah, if, of course. If, if you're a footballer and say you're a right back and you make a mistake you stay on the pitch you know you have to get back and defend for the next corner and your team can go on to win the game in cricket if you're a batsman you get a duck the team can win but you can then be sat in the dressing room sort of alone with your own thoughts having let people down or in your mind you've yeah, let people yeah, down yeah, oh God, yeah. you have uh, to learn to deal with that and, it, and, you, and you spend a lot of time on the road you know you've got uh, you know, a week in Derby say and you're staying in like a travel lodge whereas in, in, in football you, it's 90 minutes yeah. you, can, you can arrive on the morning play at 3 o'clock and you can be home by 7 or 8 depending yeah. on where you are um, does does that um, in the work you've done with some 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 of the younger cricketers now do you, do you find that there's a, it lends itself to kind of a, a loneliness more than maybe other sports? I think it certainly does. Yeah, I mean, the, when my first England tour was twenty two and a half weeks, yeah. you know, twenty two and a half weeks, and I wasn't playing very well at the beginning. Um, and if you if you're in a single room, which are, all the players are these days we weren't it was just the captain and vice we were sharing if I ha hadn't have been sharing I'd have gone round the bend because I, I needed somebody to talk to anywhere never mind when I was not playing very well I liked company so to sit in a room all evening on my own I'd have hated it so I was I was lucky that I shared rooms with people and had some great roommates but 22 and a half weeks is a ridiculous amount of time to go on tour mm. you know at the time I didn't have children didn't have children until the finish play but can you I can't imagine being away for that long if you've got two kids at home that's terrible and, it, and when I played if you wanted your wife to come out whichever wife it was at the time yeah, <laughs> you, you, you had to um you had to pay for them. So you paid for them to fly, you paid for the hotels, you paid for them to fly back. So, you know, not like today where they all fly a club class and get yeah. put up in the hotel. No, we had to pay for hours. I got back uh, into England after my first test series away. I had 850 quid left. All my mates thought I was a millionaire because I'd been <laughs> playing for England. Well, that was it. That's what I had left. Yeah. For six months' work. 
I wouldn't swap it, mind you. I wouldn't change yeah. it. I'm not complaining. Yeah. I'm just saying this is what it was like. Yeah. It's not all sort of roses from the outside and I guess the public um, and cricket fans looking and say, well, you've, you've got the best job in the world. You go to the West Indies, the Caribbean, Australia, you know, South Africa. What are you complaining about? But actually, it, it's not quite like that. It's not. But So when I, if I was getting sort of fed up if you like emotionally down there's a difference between emotional down and mental health down yeah if I was getting emotionally down I would just I'd kick myself up the arse and say look you're playing for England you're travelling the world stop whinging and I'd basically have that conversation to myself and think this is the time of your life because if you don't enjoy that how how dreadful is it going to be when I get to age 40 and I look back and think I didn't make the most of this so wherever we were I always used to take a, a camera bag with me wherever we were I'd, I wouldn't sit in my hotel in the afternoon if we were doing nothing I'd go out with my camera and go for a walk and explore because I thought right I might never be back here <laughs> which is proved quite true <laughs> in a lot of places I haven't been back Yeah. But so I always kick myself up the arse about that no you, this is what you're doing and these days now you're you're a grandfather. Yep. New lease of life. Uh, I don't think I lost the old one. Uh, yeah, little Zara. Yeah, New challenges too. though. Well, it's it's funny really because she's almost identical to how her mother was when she was little. So it's like reliving things. I mean, she's such a cute little thing. Well, she's two at the moment, so she's either laughing her head off or she's screaming. You know, <laughs> terrible twos is definitely correct. But yeah, I love it. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's it, well, family's everything to me. Yeah, yeah, my family. Not everybody else's. <laughs> my, <laughs> yeah. you know, my own family. You know, I mean, yeah. I don't mean cousins, aunts, and uncles. I don't mean that lot. I mean just who grew up in this house. Yeah. So your wife Sarah, your three daughters, and, and Sarah, the yeah. ones that yeah, yeah. and maybe more little ones to come. Um, it's been great recording with you today. Um, there's so many stories that we we could go over, but we've had to kind of stick to that 106 <laughs> against the West Indies. Um, we've also had the company of your two dogs, which has been lovely. <laughs> um, it, 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 just to finish on talking about your family and Sarah and the kids you you've given yourself you give yourself a scale of sort of 0 to 20 on how you're feeling yeah, 10's neutral 10's neutral yeah. how is Foxy Fowler at the moment I'm a 15 15 F- 15 16's the highest it ever gets so I'm in a great place at the moment in a great place yeah. well um, thank you very much for your time today and really appreciate it you're welcome cheers Foxy cheers that was fantastic mate and we'd have another cup of tea been listening to the lord's cricket podcast the stories from the home of cricket with the people that made them that was graham foxy fowler with his memories from his 1984 test century against the west indies here at lords it was great fun to sit down with foxy a real character of the game Um, he just has so many great stories and anecdotes to tell from his playing career and beyond really Um, it was really good fun I think I I certainly hope that came across I first met Foxy about three or four years ago when I went up to uh, Durham to do some filming around the centres of excellence and uh, myself and a couple of colleagues uh, went for a pint with him in the evening and he just kind of held court really um, he's the kind of guy that if you if you get him you know with a pint of ale in a pub, just that lovely Lancashire accent that he has, just can just sit there and tell yarn after yarn after yarn and not be boring. You know, be great fun. Um, I would heavily recommend his book, Absolutely Foxed. It's an autobiography. It's about his career, but it's also about much, much more than cricket. Um, I'll put a link to it in the liner notes of this podcast. Uh, I also believe he's got a new book coming out, Mind Over Batter, um, which should be available in May 2019, so keep an eye out for that. That's his uh, his second book, Mind Over Batter, or his second part of his kind of autobiography series. As ever, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Uh, Please do subscribe and give the show a rating. It helps get it up the charts, and hopefully more people will discover it and then listen to it and enjoy 
enjoy the stories. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Home of Cricket or me personally uh, at Will Road 2. You can also contact the show via email on podcast at mcc.org.uk. Also, a big thanks as ever to the BBC and ECB for the commentary clips. Um, always great to have those in and uh, listening back to Gordon Greenwich taking England um, to the cleaners here at Lords in uh, 1984. A little bit before my time, but uh, the dulcet tones of Richie Benno there. That was uh, fantastic listening back to that. Right, next Monday's guest is Nasser Hussain. After prizing him out of the Sky commentary box, well, that's not true really, uh, he popped up to the Lords Media Centre ahead of a T20 match earlier this summer and we chatted about his fairy tale ending, uh, which came here at Lords. It was in 2004, Hussein bowed out with an unbeaten century at the home of cricket. It was against New Zealand. Uh, he'd run Andrew Strauss out famously in that innings but he managed to stick in there batting with his pal Graham Thorpe at the other end and on one of those dappled late evening afternoons dappled sunlight even late evening afternoons NASA got down on one knee one knee and drove the ball through the covers for four um, to hit an unbeaten century and win that test match against New Zealand a few hours later he was done retired from international cricket we chat about that century that's the main part of the podcast also about his famous three-finger gesture to the Lord's Media Centre, which I'm sat in right now, and plenty, plenty more. Um, it was a great privilege to sit down with Nasser. He's quite an intense bloke. Um, he captained England through a genuine transition period in the late 90s and early noughties. So that's next week's Lord's Cricket Podcast with Nasser Hussain.